their worship this morning. Appreciate it, guys. If you have your Bibles, please grab those now and turn to John chapter 16. It's so good to see each and every one of you here this morning. I'd like to greet those of you joining us online as well. We're going to be uh, continuing on in our Advent series looking at these uh, three themes um, that we chose from the uh, sort of liturgical, traditional themes of Advent, of, of hope and peace and joy. And today's theme is going to be peace, and we're going to look at uh, the peace that we have in Jesus Christ. And so as you're turning there, um, if you do not have a Bible with you, there's a black one to see back in front of you. On page 951 of that, you'll find John chapter 16. We encourage you to uh, tune in and join us, um, or turn there and join us as we read those passages today. Um, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer before we get started in this. Father, we are thankful uh, for the opportunity that we've had this morning to gather, for the opportunity that we've had uh, to worship you already, and we pray now uh, that as we turn our attention to your word, uh, that you would be present among us here in this room, you'd be present among the living rooms and, and places where people are tuning in online. Um, God, that at this moment you would just sort of take over, that you would be the one who speaks and encourages and convicts and moves, God, that you would draw people to yourself, and most of all, Lord, that you get the glory from all this. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name, amen. I don't know how many of you know uh, the word dissonance, but the idea of dissonance is a powerful one. Um, dissonance can happen. There, there's several different areas that it can happen. First, uh, there's this, the idea of musical dissonance. It's when uh, two notes are played that have no harmony together. Uh, a good example of this would be if they ever let me on stage here with a microphone while the worship team was playing, what would come out of my mouth would not be harmonious at all with what they were playing, right? That's musical dissonance. Uh, there's cognitive dissonance that uh, this is what you experience when... You uh, perform an action that does not line up with your core beliefs, right? And so you feel sort of that, that tension of your own hypocrisy. That's called cognitive dissonance. The word dissonance itself is just a tension or a clash resulting from a combination of two disharmonious elements. It's a feeling, to, to put it in more layman's terms, it's a feeling that comes when you see something that's not right and that you know is not consistent with what you uh, know to be reality. So for instance, here's a few examples. If a lifelong Democrat all of a sudden voted Republican, right? There'd be some dissonance there. If someone who hated cold weather just voluntarily moved to Alaska, you'd be like, man, there, there are two things here that don't match. If Bill Pelichick and the New England Patriots all of a sudden stopped cheated and cheating and played by the rules, you'd be like, that's not what I know to be true, right? If you ever saw me in St. Louis Cardinals gear, you would know something is terribly wrong, right? You should probably check on me and get me to a hospital quickly, right? Because we like Harmony. We value consistency, especially in things that we find our identity in. Which is why it can appear troubling that there is a dissonance that flows throughout the Word of God. That from cover to cover, there's this repeated theme that, if misunderstood and misapplied, could create a really great dissonance for the reader. Did you know that one of the biggest themes in the Bible is peace? Peace is Offered, pieces proclaimed, pieces declared, pieces promised throughout both the Old and New Testament. It's first mentioned in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. It's last mentioned in Revelation, the very last book of the Bible. And it's mentioned more than 400 times in between. And so it's no surprise, right, that on the night of Jesus' birth, this is what we find. In Luke chapter 2, the angel showed up to the shepherds to announce God's son's arrival. And suddenly, in verse 13... There's a multitude of the heavenly hosts that joined the angel, right? And they were praising God and saying, listen to what they, they were singing. Glory to God in the highest heaven 
and peace on earth to people he favors. Now, that ever struck you as funny? Right, sure, we have angels heralding the arrival of God's son. That makes sense. They bust out in praise. Makes sense. Glory to God in the highest heaven. All that makes sense. But it's this line right here. Peace on earth. Peace on earth. Right? Peace on earth to people he favors. This line in the song is not a hopeful one. It's a declarative statement. The angels are declaring that, that what came with this child was peace on earth to people that he favors. Now, it's not the only time that such a statement was made. Throughout the Old Testament, there's, there's declarative statements of peace made over the people of Israel. Throughout the New Testament, right, the same statements are made over the church of Jesus. In fact, every single one of Paul's letters to a church in the New Testament starts with this greeting, grace and peace to you in Christ Jesus our Lord. But here's where the dissonance comes in. On the night of Jesus' birth, when this declarative statement was made, there was a noted lack of peace. God's people had been conquered by Rome. Throughout the Roman Empire, there were legions of soldiers who were dispatched to squash out any sort of rebellion or uprising against Rome, and there were plenty of them. For circumstances outside of their control, uh, Mary and Joseph were sort of the center stage of the scene. They had become outcasts in their hometown. Then she has to deliver the child in a manger of all places. And despite the angel's proclamation, things didn't get worried from there. In fact, they just got worse. In a very short time, worries about, worried about rumors of a child king being born, King Herod ordered that all the male babies in Bethlehem be killed. One of the most horrendous acts by a political ruler in history. Jesus' family had to flee Egypt to, to spare him of that fate. Certainly, none of that felt like peace. But that's the thing, you see. Throughout the Old Testament, the children of Israel were almost never at peace. In the New Testament, the church is persecuted and scattered in really short order. How about you, right? I want you to just think about the state of our world now. Does it seem peaceful to you? Think back over 2020. If you were to choose a list of words to describe life in 2020, how many would you use before you got to peace? I'm betting that list would be pretty long. And this can create one of two reactions for us. Number one, we, we carry dissonance into the scriptures. We, we believe that what we read in God's word doesn't line up with our experience at all. Or it can create disconnection where the promises of the Bible become these idealized notions that aren't really relevant to my life. And I need you to know this morning that neither of those could be further from the truth. But as followers of Jesus, students of God's word, we need to grasp just what this peace is that the Bible keeps referring to. The very fact that God keeps promising peace to people not experiencing it tells us we need a new definition of what peace is. This is why I'm thankful for this conversation recorded for us in John 16. Because in a chat with his disciples on the night before the cross, Jesus takes the supposed dissonance head on. And so I'm going to invite uh, Roxanne up this morning to read today's passage for you. It's going to be John chapter 16, verses 29 through 33. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand with her for the reading of God's word? Morning, Roxanne. Morning. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe, Jesus replied? A time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone for my Father is with me. 
I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Thank you, Roxanne. You guys can have a seat. Keep your Bibles open right there to John 16 because I want to take a few moments to fill you in on this conversation a little because there's a, there's a cool moment in it that I think at first read we, we, we might miss. Uh, the context, like I mentioned before, is that this conversation is happening on the night before the cross. In fact, it's very late at night, all right, before they get to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so this is just a handful of hours uh, before Jesus' substitutionary death uh, for the atonement of sins of any who believe in him. And so it's a very heightened night of much tension. And these disciples that remain, the 11 that are with him now, are ones who have traveled with Jesus everywhere for the last three years. Right, and so they've heard all his teachings, they've heard all his parables, they've seen all his miracles. And if you read the Gospels, you know in those three years they've grown a lot, but they've also been confused a lot. But there's a lot that just went right over their heads. There's a lot that they missed and couldn't grasp in the moment. But in John 16, in the verses leading up to verse 29 where Roxanne started reading, Jesus does, he tries a new strategy with them. He stops using analogies. He stops uh, using literary techniques and parables, and he just starts telling them plainly. He says, I came from the Father. I was sent by my Father to come into this world. I will go back to my Father. It's, It's an undeniable claim of divinity. He's telling them, I am God's Son who came into the world. And in a weird response to this, in verse 29, the disciples almost start flexing. Right? They're like, oh, okay. Since you now will tell us plainly, Jesus, as if you would, they're like almost, almost discrediting for not doing it three years before. They're like, we got it now. Right? We're, we're confident. We know who you are. We know where you came from. It's like they're saying this, Jesus, you don't have to worry about us anymore. All our questions are answered. Our faith is rock solid. We're going to be rock solid. You can depend on us for anything here on out. And how does Jesus respond to that? He's basically like, really? You think you got it now, right? You think you're good? Here's what's going to happen, guys. In just a handful of hours, you're all going to desert me. You're all going to scatter me when the going gets tough. Now, is Jesus just being mean here? No. What he wants them to know is that any sort of confidence, any sort of assurance, or, or hear me, any sort of peace that comes from us is not really peace. Any peace that has its foundation in self-confidence or the circumstances of life is is not a peace that will last. Which is why he starts verse 33, if you look at it, with this line, I have told you this, and here's the key words, so that in me you will have peace. That's the overriding truth that I want us to know today, that peace is found in Christ. That is where it is found. And if we're to get this, we have to understand what the biblical concept of peace is. In the Old Testament, the word we translate peace was the Hebrew word shalom. In the New Testament, it's the Greek word irene. And in the modern day West, right, this is our understanding of peace, right? We see peace as something that comes from the outside in. And what I mean by that is, is this, that as long as my circumstances are good, as long as life is good, as long as my health is good, as long as peace surrounds me, then I can have peace within me. Now, there's a great weakness in that understanding. And the weakness is this. The weakness is that peace is then reliant on circumstance. It becomes reliant on outside forces, and it makes peace incredibly fleeting. Now, when the Old Testament used shalom, that word referred to a peace that had inner roots, not outside roots. There was a completeness and wholeness to it that came from the soul. 
And the idea is carried on into the New Testament, right? Here's how one scholar defines the biblical word for peace. He says this, It is the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly law. It's so important, I'm going to read it again. This is the definition of the biblical word for peace. It is a tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot. Now, all that sounds great, but Jesus takes it a step further here in John 16, and he tells us in verse 33 that peace is found in him. This type of inner peace is not found anywhere else, which is why, back in Luke 2, those angels could declare on the night of his birth that peace had indeed come. It's why 400 times in the Bible, peace is declared and promised because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done. Peace is available. There's three different aspects of this I want to highlight this morning. And the first is simply this, that we can have peace with God because of Jesus. And this is the one that that buys all the rest, right? This is the the peace that all the rest ride upon. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 tells us this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the true source of peace. Do you remember the definition? It's the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ. There is only one source of peace because there is only one source of salvation. That's why he came, by the way. He came because we exist under the curse of sin. And in our sinful state, we compile a debt to God that we cannot pay. We reject his design. We ignore his rule. We break his commands and we do so willingly. And in that sin, in our state of sinfulness, we have no peace with God. And his holiness, his perfection demands a payment for sin. And we will pay it not just by our physical death, but by our spiritual death in hell for all eternity. If someone didn't step in and pay that for us, which is why only in Jesus we can have peace. Because it was only Jesus who was God in human form. It was only Jesus who lived a sinless life that we have not and could not. It was only Jesus who, therefore, his death paid the price for the sins of others. And it was only Jesus who defeated death. And so only Jesus can forgive us. Only Jesus can save us. Only Jesus can give us eternal life because only Jesus can give us peace with God. And when we place our faith and trust in him, that's exactly what he does. In me you may have peace, he says. Because of who he is and what he's done. We can have peace with God if we believe in him. Secondly, he has made it possible for us to have peace with others. I'm going to read a couple verses to you in the New Testament. I want you to pay attention to language in them. Okay, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. So we're told to pursue peace. Then in Romans 12, we get, we're told this. That if possible, as far as it depends on you... Live at peace with everyone. Now, I asked you to track the language of that because we need to point out the concessions in those two verses. And the concession is this, that peace between people rides on both parties agreeing to the peace. Right? We can't, be, we can't have one party saying, I want to be at peace with this person, and the other party being like, I don't want to be, and have them be at peace. They have to both agree upon it. And God recognizes this in his word, which is why we are commanded as followers of Jesus to what? To pursue peace. We're told that if it's possible, as far as it depends on us, to live at peace. Now, here's what these verses mean. It doesn't mean that we must live in a state of peace with everyone because that's outside of our control. What it means is this, that God has given followers of Jesus everything they need to live at peace with others. 
And if we aren't at peace with someone in our lives, it better not be us contributing to the lack of peace or we're in the wrong. Now, how has he done this? Well, it's pretty simple, really. We owed God a debt that we could not pay. Nobody has ever been worse to me than I've been to God. And no one's ever been worse to you than you've been to God. And God would have been well within his rights to punish and condemn and destroy me for my rebellion. And what he did instead was take my punishment on his back. Jesus died taking the whips and the nails and the blows that that I deserved, taking the death that I deserved to pay, paying my price. And with that in place, this is what he now expects of us. Colossians chapter 3. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. And here's the standard. Just as the Lord has forgiven you. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Listen, in Jesus Christ, God has forgiven me in full. Holding no grudge, no ill will. It is not too much to expect those who have been shown such tremendous grace to be people of grace as well. Which means this, that if I'm in Jesus Christ, there is to be no one in my life that I hold a standing grudge towards. There's no one in my life that I hold ongoing bitterness towards. There's no one in my life that I hold forgiveness from. And that may sound hard, but this is made possible for us in Jesus explicitly because what Jesus has done for us. We can have peace with God. We can have peace with others. And thirdly, we can have a peace that persists. I want you to hear this language in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. May the Lord of peace himself, and listen to this, give you peace always in every way. It's pretty all-encompassing, isn't it? May he give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I was talking to a woman this week who has zero reasons for peace right now. Right? If, you, if you just look at the circumstances of her life, the circumstances of her life are beyond what I can comprehend. In fact, every time I thought of it this week, my stomach just ached. And yet in the conversation, I asked her how she was doing, and this is what she said. She said, it might sound cliche, but the Lord has been with me every single moment. And really, I'm doing okay. And I thought, that doesn't sound cliche at all. It sounds exactly like what the Bible promises. It reminded me of a book I read in April of 1999. Uh, there were two students who attacked their high school in Colorado, Columbine School, and what has since become tragically normal. It was the first sort of school shooting, major school shooting, that, that took the national attention. And several years later, I read a book by an investigative journalist on what happened, both in the lead-up to it, the event itself, and the aftermath of it. And there was one chapter in the book that was incredibly moving to me. And the chapter described the scene at the local elementary school gym, because this is where they told every parent who had a student at Columbine High School to go to that gym and wait for buses that would bring the students from the high school to the gym, and each parent could then be reunited with their student and take them home. And so for hours, buses would come, and relieved parents would, would meet their students, and they'd be rejoicing and go. But eventually, right... Eventually, as more and more hours passed, the remaining parents began to realize that it was their kids who weren't coming home. And the author interviewed the people who were there in the gym, and everybody recalled the same scene. That there were a few families there who uh, were, were noted about their faith. They were noted evangelical Christians, right? And they talked about how they were going around comforting all the other families. And they were described like this, that though they were just as sad and shocked as everyone else in the room, they had a peace about them that nobody else in the room had. Look at verse 33 again. 
I have told you these things that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous, I have conquered the world. Two chapters earlier in John 14, Jesus says that he gives peace not as the world gives, but as he does it. The difference between worldly peace and the peace that Jesus offers is that his remains. It's a peace that's not dependent on circumstances, but one that overcomes them. Real peace is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. In him we can have peace with God, in him we can have peace with others, and in him we can have a peace that persists. So there's three things I want to suggest that we do with that this morning. Number one is simply this, to embrace the peace that Christ has bought you. A few weeks ago I made uh, a joyous discovery, you could call it, right? I was cleaning out the console of my truck and I, I found a thank you card that somebody had sent me uh, for providing their family with a service and, and I decided to read the card again because uh, who doesn't like reading encouraging words? But this time I discovered something new. This time when I pulled the card out, I saw that there was something else in the envelope, that behind the card in the envelope was a check. Now that's a pretty fun surprise, right? When you ever discovered there's money you didn't know you had. But then I started thinking about it. That, that family had written that check weeks before. Right? They'd, already, they'd already written it. They'd already made the gift possible. They'd already given it to me weeks before. But until I discovered it, until I took it to the bank, I didn't take hold of what they had given me. And I tell you that because we're spending time as a church looking at these themes of Advent, of hope and peace and joy. And what I'm telling you is that Jesus Christ has written the check for each of them. He's already paid the price. He's already done all the work. He's already made it possible. What's left is this question. Will you take hold of what Jesus has bought you? Will you take hold of what Jesus has already done for you? If you lack peace with God this morning, which means you've never given your life to Jesus, asked him to forgive you and take over your life, will you take hold of that today? To have your sins forgiven in full, to have the promise of eternal life in heaven. Jesus Christ has already done the work. You just need to accept it in belief. If you lack peace with others today, if you're holding on this morning to grudges and to bitterness and unforgiveness, will you release them to the Lord this morning? Say, God, I don't want to hold this anymore. I release them to your grace. Release myself to your grace. I want to take hold of your peace today. He's already made that possible for you. If you're facing suffering and trials, if you're under strain and press, well, you, you can take hold of the peace that persists this morning. You can remind yourself that he is love and that he is good and that he is for you. You can remind yourself that your salvation is assured because of it's through Jesus, not your own works. You can remind yourself that you have nothing to fear and that because of Jesus, your story is going to end really, really well regardless. And in doing so, you can put on the peace that he has bought for you. It's already been purchased. Will you embrace it? Secondly, I want to challenge you to run to the source of peace. If you find yourself struggling to remember, you find yourself struggling to take hold of the peace that's been purchased for you, I have good news that there is a source of peace that's been made available to you as well. Galatians chapter 5 says this, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's right there in the fruits of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 says this. The mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. I want you to understand the fruits of the Spirit are what are given to us the more time we spend with Him. 
The mindset of the Spirit is what is given to us in increasing measure the more our mindsets are shaped and transformed by Him. And this should make total sense, right? If peace is found in Jesus, then the closer we get to Him, the more peace we'll be experiencing. And so if you are experiencing what you would describe as a lack of peace today, then might I suggest it could come from a lack of connection with the Prince of Peace. And I would encourage you to do whatever you can to connect with him, to communicate with him in prayer, to get in his word, to worship him, to, to meditate on passages of scripture, to, to get out in nature. Do, do those things that connect you with the Holy Spirit. Do those things that inflame your passion for the Lord. And I promise you that, that, that when you are in his presence, peace will come. So be around him more and more. And lastly, I want to challenge you to be a spreader of peace. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Last week I mentioned how I've been praying for us as a church, not just that we would be people who cling to hope, but that we would be people who would be spreaders of hope. It's the same idea this week, it's going to be the same idea all month long. And the idea is this, that peace is an amazing gift. Peace with God is the most wondrous gift of all. Peace from bitterness and grudges is great. Peace that persists. I mean, you can't even put a price tag on that. But then Jesus takes it further in Matthew 5 and says that we are blessed when we are peacemakers as well. What he means is this. If peace is such an amazing gift, why in the world would we keep that to ourselves? I spent some time uh, recently thinking about wakes. I know that's a weird thing to think about, but... Uh, Pastor Adam in his Wednesday night study was quoting Proverbs 30, and it was talking about how you can, uh, you can go to a lake or a body of water that a boat had gone through a few hours before and not even know it had been there, left no trace. Right? And I thought, it is kind of remarkable how a boat can cross a body of water, and in enough time, you wouldn't even know it was there. But in the immediate aftermath, you can, can't you? Because after the boat travels, there's always a wake that's left behind. There's always a wake that goes out. And if you're close enough, there's always a wake that will send waves to the shore. And, and it got me to wonder is this. I've been wondering, what am I leaving in my wake? When I leave people, when I leave a room, when I leave a conversation, what's left behind? What's left in my wake? Is, is there, are people better off because they, of their interaction with me? Are they better off because of their interaction with you? Is there more joy? Is there more hope? Is there more peace? Or when you leave a room, when you leave people, is there more anger and skepticism and discord and bitterness and stress? Let's be conscious about what we're leaving in our wake. Let's, let's be peacemakers this week and this season and this life. Let's, let's leave in our wake the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Let's, how about this? Let's just be the best part of someone's day. Yes, for the chance of sharing with someone who needs it the peace that Jesus made possible, but also because peace is such an amazing gift. It's one that we should really want to and desire to and strive to share. 2,000 years ago, the angels declared peace to a world that was conspicuously absent of it. They declared peace to that world, and they meant it, and it was true, because they knew what had just happened. And it's still true today. So grace And peace to you, friends, in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we can come to you, that we can present our requests to you, that we can spend time with you, and what you promise in response is a peace that passes all understandings that will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
And so what I pray for anybody who's listening in this room or online who has not had peace with God, they have not given their lives to Jesus Christ, that today would be their day of salvation, that they would get that taken care of by, by trusting in Jesus, trusting in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of their sins, asking him to take over their life so they can be reconciled to you and made at peace with you. Lord, if there's anybody in this room, anybody within the sound of my voice that, that is not at peace with others, they are clinging to anger and bitterness and discord, God, that, that they, would, they are clinging to unforgiveness. Would they release that by the power and love and grace of Jesus? Would they surrender that to you today and find the freedom that peace with others brings? And then, Lord, for the many the many who the circumstances of their lives would dictate that peace is absent. The circumstances of lives would paint a picture that peace is impossible. Lord, would you grant them the peace that persists, the peace that is found in Jesus, the peace that is found in the one who overcame the world, the peace that is present even in suffering and trial. And then would you help us to be spreaders of it everywhere we go to the glory of your name. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, before the guys lead us in one more closing song response, we're going to give you a couple moments to spend just between yourself and the Lord, a chance for you to, to pray and, and wrestle with some things that he might be putting on your heart this morning. If you need some guidance, uh, we have some prayer guides on the screens for you, but this is really just your time to spend with him.